Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. You will find original and interesting off-narrative reflections. We're at crunch time, folks, when it comes to information, manipulation, and control. You're seeing more and more of it every day, whether it's on the news or social media or elsewhere on the internet, which means it's time to pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It's on point with everything that you're seeing today, pre-election, post-election, what's happening on social media with the censorship that's become so blatant, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. So I hope you'll consider pre-ordering Slanted today. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about The big miss again, and by that I mean how the pundits, polls, and analysts got it so wrong for the second presidential election in a row. We all know that a lot is at stake for each side, depending on the outcome of every presidential election in 2020 was no different. Many seem to think that the stakes were even higher than ever before in this one election. But really, a key subplot to all of this is something that is even larger than any one campaign, and that is the polls and the pundits and the confidence in the system that we've entrusted for some decades now. As you know, there was already simmering mistrust of polls after past big misses, most notably the 2016 election, The narrative after 2016 was that the polls were actually accurate, they just picked the wrong winner. The truth is, most people understand that the way the polls were reported in 2016, they were used as narratives to try to give the appearance that, as many experts incorrectly claimed, Trump could never win. Obviously, the opposite was true. So let's start by going over where Democrat Joe Biden supposedly began the night On Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, he had an eight-point lead in national polls when you're looking at one of the main averages. Joe Biden, an eight-point lead over Donald Trump, the largest, by the way, of any candidate on the eve of an election since Bill Clinton back in 1996, according to the polling group 538. Eight-point lead in the national polls. Now, again, This is all against the backdrop of 2016, and really, I wrote and spoke a lot about this over the last couple of years. I've done stories about this on my program, Full Measure. America's trust in the predictive system was so shaken after 2016 that really we started this new sort of avocation, which is measuring the odds that the odds are wrong, and looking at the polls askance, understanding that the polls may be wrong, or at least considering that that's a very real possibility. So I've written about this in my book, Slanted, that the polls have been too often used in the last two presidential campaigns to try to make people think a certain way or to further a narrative rather than simply measuring public opinion. Who among us does not remember that in 2015, the pollsters and the pundits and the analysts started with their very confident predictions that turned out to be completely wrong. Remember 
For example, Mara Liason on TV, one political analyst, saying that the day Donald Trump announced for president, June 16th, 2015, she said, I think this is Donald Trump's biggest day and he will be ignored from henceforth. Obviously, that wasn't the case. There was a clip from ABC News that I've watched since then from July 26, 2015, where one Democrat was actually saying in a news program that we better be ready that Trump might be leading the Republican ticket. And George Stephanopoulos laughed and laughed and said, I know you don't believe that. And then also snickering was Maggie Haberman, who covers the White House for the New York Times now, but had been labeled when she worked at Politico as a friendly who would publish whatever the Clintons wanted them to have published or when they wanted something leaked to the press. But there she is snickering as well. What a funny joke it is that they thought Donald Trump could lead the Republican ticket in 2016. And then, of course, we all remember President Obama saying that Donald Trump would never be president. As time went on and the Trump candidacy became very real, Going into election night in 2016, the polling group 538, Nate Silver's group, showed Hillary Clinton with a 71% chance of winning and Donald Trump just 28%. Really, though, it wasn't just 538. Nearly all pollsters and analysts, save but a couple, were in lockstep with the narrative that Trump had no path to victory, just couldn't do it. After the fact... Of course, when Donald Trump won decisively with far more electoral votes than he needed, there were a lot of promises by the media and analysts to self-reflect and self-correct. But something happened. I really never saw the self-reflection and self-correction. In fact, it started to look to me as if the media doubled down on the misreporting, not just when it came to polling and analysis, but of course they went off way off on the wrong tangent in the Russia collusion narrative. Turns out after a couple of years of putting forth false information and accusations that were very rarely balanced with counterpoints or with the facts that turned out to be true, after all of that mess, the media really didn't do a lot of self-reflection or changing. In many different ways, they continued to fall short, the news as well, and then social media got in on the act more aggressively than ever before, where they started stepping in and tampering with information, labeling certain information false or unreliable when it wasn't or when it was simply a matter of opinion. And all of this has led to this crisis in confidence in the systems that we normally use to report on politics, to measure public opinion and where the status of public opinion is at a given time. So this is all chipped away at confidence. So here we come to 2020, and this is the chance maybe the analysts and the people reporting on polls have and the pundits to say, we're going to do it right, or we did it right this time. But I kind of thought one of the big things that was missing was any explanation of what they'd done to self-correct. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any news organizations that called things so wrong, that misreported things so egregiously. I didn't see them issue public reports indicating how they were going to fix the problems that they'd had in the past. I didn't see them really identify and admit what they'd done wrong or that they'd tracked down ways to not repeat their errors or that they had reformed their system so it wouldn't happen again. 
And here, four years later, it seemed to come pretty fast. We're in 2020, and it looks like it happened again. Even with the final tally still outstanding on election night, it became pretty clear early on that the major polls and the pundits once again proved not to be believed. One of the first forecasts that fell apart was that of a Democrat blue wave. And there were so many of these predictions. I'm just picking on a couple of people or a couple of outlets in particular that provide good examples of this. There was someone named Chris Saliza of CNN who commented at one point that you begin to see the makings of a Democratic landslide. He claimed if the political environment remains roughly as it is today, this was ahead of the election, and other pundits were saying things like, we keep hearing about a blue wave. It seems the markets have baked in a blue wave. We've seen in the betting markets the likelihood of a blue wave has increased materially. And when they're talking about a blue wave, they're not just talking about the presidential election. Well, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But according to Real Clear Politics, the New York Times Siena College poll rated an A-plus pollster by 538 polling group, overestimated Biden's support in the end by a lot in key states, got it completely wrong. Again, a reputable, supposedly A-plus pollster, the New York Times-Siena College poll, overestimated Biden's support, we knew this on election night, by about four in North Carolina. These are not insignificant margins when states and races are run sometimes by seven-tenths of a point, for example. The New York Times-Siena College poll overestimated Biden's support in Ohio by nine, according to Real Clear Politics, by six in Florida, and by 10 in Wisconsin and Iowa. That's not even close. That's not even in the neighborhood of what would be normally considered anywhere near the neighborhood. Quinnipiac and many others, as you probably know, put Florida in Biden's win column as if there was no chance that Trump was going to take Florida on election night in 2020. I looked up a couple of the predictions that had come in. I looked them up after a fact. We see October 7th, a TV station reporting that Democratic nominee Joe Biden has widened his lead over President Trump in the Sunshine State. That's Florida. Biden with 51 percent, Trump with 40 percent. So again, they have Biden winning Florida by 11 percentage points. There was Another prediction in early October that said former Vice President Joe Biden was leading the president among likely voters in Florida, 45% reporting that they would vote for Trump, but 51% saying that they intended to vote for Joe Biden. As you know, Trump not only did not lose Florida on election night, he tripled his lead, the one he had in Florida, over Clinton. Some of those projections that I just mentioned were in the neighborhood of 14 percentage points 15 percentage points off, you and I could probably do better than that without even taking a poll. That's ridiculous. Trump also won Ohio against a lot of predictions, including those from Quinnipiac. And there was even serious talk, you may recall, of Biden turning the reliably red state of Texas blue. People were saying that Texas was going to go for Biden. Trump won it by almost eight points those predictions weren't anywhere close. These are disastrous numbers and predictions in a business that relies entirely on its reputation for at least 
getting some of the picks, if not most of the picks, fairly close within the range of what they said it would be. We're talking 11 points, 14 points, 15 points off. Disastrous. After a short break, we'll talk about the electoral picture that was painted and what turned out to really be the case. We're back. So now let's take a look at the electoral map count because a lot of those projections were blown out of the water on election night too in an embarrassing way that again adds to this crisis in confidence in our system of polling and analysts and pundits. In mid-October, for example, CNN foresaw a Biden landslide. They thought that Trump might get only 170 electoral votes out of the 270 needed to win. But that was better off than another picture painted for Trump on the electoral side from multiple polling groups, including 538 and combined ratings from Cook Political Report, Inside Elections with Nathan L. Gonzalez, and Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. They forecast that Trump would get no more than 125 electoral votes in the end, leaving Biden with a landslide victory of up to 413 electoral votes. But the day after the election, Trump had already racked up 213 electoral votes, not the 125 anemic prediction that had been made by the so-called experts who, again, were getting it so wildly wrong. And it was clear at that point that the landslide scenario was off the table. Part of the landslide scenario included predictions that Democrats would wrest the majority in the Senate away from Republicans. In fact, I heard quite a few Republicans that I spoke to think that that would probably be the case. They worried that that would be the case. And there was the thought that Democrats would drastically increase their lead in the House as well. Neither of those things happened. The Republicans held on to the Senate. Actually, there were Some really surprising upsets, surprising because, again, the pollsters and the pundits did not predict them, such as Democrat Donna Shalala losing her seat as a member of Congress from Florida. Some senators that people thought were in trouble held on to their seats even after tons of money was spent, often from sources outside the state at issue. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, he held on to his seat quite easily. Susan Collins of Maine, another Republican, she held on to her seat despite dire predictions that they were in serious trouble. Also, Senate leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. So again, the picture that was painted or at least predicted by so many going in was completely different than the one that came true on election night. Now, the analysts were right on one big count. The election wasn't decided on election night. And that was one thing we kept getting told over and over again. In a way, that was by design with so many rule changes and late counts. So it was a pretty safe prediction. All of the chaos kind of harkens back to the 2000 race that I I guess a lot of people don't even remember today. If you're young enough or you weren't paying attention to politics, and quite frankly, I wasn't paying careful attention to politics because I was not a political reporter or political analyst at the time. In 2000, the race between 
Democrat Al Gore and Republican George W. Bush. To go over what happened, first on election night, the networks called Florida for Gore, Florida again a key and pivotal state with all of its electoral votes, the networks called it for Gore. Then, though, the call was switched to Bush. It's as if the networks looked again, decided they'd made a mistake, called it too soon, and so they switched the call to Bush. That was a really big deal. So shortly after that, Gore actually came out and conceded, admitted defeat. But it didn't take long before he took back his concession. So here we are once again with a contested race in Florida. Again, it's been called for Gore, switched to Bush, Gore conceded, then he took it back. And really the networks were in chaos that night. Uh, I was working at CBS News, but as things were swinging back and forth and the election desks were proving to be either prematurely calling or wrong in their predictions, it was, it was really chaotic. There were only 537 votes separating the two candidates in this very important state of Florida. So in came the lawyers. There were recounts. There were accusations of fraud. And America became familiar with the term hanging chads and pregnant chads. Chads were those deformed fragments of paper in those punch card ballots. Maybe the paper wasn't punched out all of the way. Those were called hanging chads, or maybe they were poked but not punched through. And it took three weeks before, in the end, Florida declared Bush the winner of the 25 electoral votes and thus the presidency. But back to the race at hand and back to the role of pundits and analysts and polls, if you combine that with the misreporting of the news for the past four years on President Trump in so many instances, and then you add to that this big tech control of our information and news and the blatant censorship that wasn't even the hidden algorithms doing the work, but the actual pulling accounts down, tampering with the president's tweets and other people only on one side of the issue, censoring opinion and analysis when it came down on the side of Trump, but of course never censoring it when it came down on the other side, even if it was completely wrong and false. And I want to step back just a minute and say that Certainly in this analysis, I'm not advocating, as some seem to be, that big tech, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, be equally censoring of the other side rather than only the conservative side. I don't think they should be censoring either side. And I think we're falling into a trap sometimes when those who are criticizing the big tech censorship say, well, they're doing it to one side, they should be doing this to the other, and look, they're not, because we're continuing with that argument to accept or to put the power of controlling our information in their hands. And instead, we should be resting it away. We should be saying, in my view, that we have a right to see all of the information except that which is illegal or that which we have opted not to see. And it shouldn't be up to people at big tech companies. Think of this, social media companies inserting themselves as if they have any expertise in what's true and what's false on complicated issues that they can't possibly be experts about, putting themselves in as arbiters of important opinions and political analysis that they may have no particular expertise in or that they're conflicted on themselves because they're on one side of the issue. But I digress. Bad calls happen all the time when you look at polling because 
all polling is and predictions and analysis is an idea of a snapshot in time of how something is and perhaps a view of how it may turn out. So I get that. Certainly no one expects them to be perfectly spot on. But when you look at the narratives that they furthered, the way they've been used, the way they've used their information, the way that they've gathered together to bully the pollsters that are off the narrative, and perhaps in the end, far more correct than they were, but because the accurate pollsters are on the wrong narrative, they're bullied and pushed and controversialized and bad things are written about them as if they're inaccurate or skewed. It's a topsy-turvy environment, and we've now been shown that they didn't self-correct after 2016. They probably had no intention of doing it. They were just as wrong in many respects in 2020, if not more respects in some cases. And this is two presidential elections in a row. This was the time, this was the chance or the opportunity that they had to prove themselves to the public to try to get back some confidence and trust. But not having done that, it means the system needs some kind of major overhaul. Right now, nobody's going to believe the polls, even the ones who want to believe them because they're saying the things that they wish to believe. Even those people will know that the polls are just too far off too many times, too hard to believe. So I think we're at a place where it's simply impossible for many people to further trust the system that we've relied on for so long. And those responsible are forced to evaluate and do a wholesale renovation of their industry if they hope to have any meaningful relevance in the near future. I dive into this subject at length in my new book, Slanted. I hope you'll consider pre-ordering it today. The full title is Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and hate journalism, you can pre-order it on Amazon or wherever you like to pre-order books. I like to think of an alternate title for the book as The Death of the News as We Once Knew It. Was it murder or suicide? By that, I'm talking about the news, the polls, and analysis, and this crisis in confidence. Was that something that outside forces caused? Did Donald Trump, by criticizing the media, cause the crisis in confidence? Or did we do it, as I ask in my book, Slanted, did we do it to ourselves by our own actions? Pre-order Slanted today. It comes out November 24th. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Leave a great review, share it with your friends. And also check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 